Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. It's week three of the NFL season, and I'm sure many of you have noticed that Mark Schofield and I haven't done a quick game so far for the season. And that's entirely my fault. I just haven't connected with Mark. It's been a busy couple of weeks for me. The season's kind of flown by already, and I know it has for him. Um, I will get in touch with him and try and find some time for us to get this rebooted so that we can um, do some quick game work at least every other week. I know many of you look forward to that. I love doing the show with Mark, and um, nothing to worry about from that end. Um, So this week, it's just going to be another solo podcast with me. Unfiltered part two, let's just put it that way, or half filtered part two, however I put it. We're going to look at some players um, that I studied from the All-22 and give you my thoughts about them. Um, We're also going to talk about some players in terms of what I think is interesting to learn about from a standpoint of evaluating as a fan or as a fantasy analyst as opposed to people who are in the scouting industry and tend to know this kind of stuff. Um, And then I'm going to give some advice for people who are interested in maybe getting into the fantasy industry or the football writing industry, Um, maybe even the scouting standpoint as well, whether it's draft writing or football writing or fantasy football. I've been doing this for long enough that, you know, I get emails asking for advice on occasion and realize that, you know, maybe there are folks who'd like to, to learn or know, you know, what my thoughts are, even if they've been doing it for a while. So I'm going to share some of that as well. Um, and yeah, some of it will probably be <laughs> filtered or completely unfiltered as we go through there. So let's start off with some of the players because, um, you know, every week when the when the NFL releases its All-22 film, you know, there's players that I'm interested in looking at. And of course, on Sundays, if you don't follow me on Twitter, then you might want to check me out then because for the top 10 article I do at Football Guys where I provide all this tape evidence from Twitter... I probably put out four to five times as many videos as what you see in that um, in that weekly column, and they're all on Twitter for you to look at. And I noticed that, you know, when it was time for me to ask some folks, you know, who would you like me to look at just to look for maybe some immediate ideas? And I had already had some folks in mind. For instance, Baker Mayfield, I did a, a review of his Cincinnati game, a 20-minute YouTube video. I also did... Uh, a Daryl Henderson video and a J.K. Dobbins video that's coming out soon. The Jake, um, the the Daryl Henderson video is already out on the Gut Check. Um, this week's Gut Check at Football Guys, and I want to thank some folks. I'm going to re- um, reserve that from in a minute here. Um, but I did a lot of, you know, I've done some videos already. I've already looked at Mo uh, Ali Cox, and so I asked some folks what they thought, and and I got a ton of answers from people. And I narrowed it down to a few and, and watched some of them. So I watched some Jerry Judy. I watched some um, Antonio Gibson, Mo Ali Cox, Logan Thomas, Evan Ingram. Um, and I thought I'd share some of my thoughts on those guys right now. But it was interesting to look and see people mentioning players that I had done extensive videos on on YouTube. And I'm thinking, yeah, you probably don't tune into YouTube. I'm not YouTube, but on Twitter on Sundays. Um, But if you did, you'd probably see my videos from there. And and it's understandable. You're probably watching the games, you know. And then on Monday, you got to go to work. It's not like you're going to spend all day at work watching um, Twitter videos that are like 30 seconds to a minute long, are you? Yeah, I thought so. Anyway, (laughs) so... You know, let's start off with Evan Ingram because that was one of the players that I was asked about a lot. Is like, look at Evan Ingram. What's going on with him? I had Dan Schneider, who's a football writer, ask about, you know, why don't they use him more up the seam? And, you know, when I looked at what I saw from an offensive perspective, I saw them spread the field a fair bit and they would use Ingram in the middle of the field. They wouldn't send him up the seam necessarily, but they used him more as an underneath option. And I think the reason they did that is that they value his ability to break a tackle and to be able to get yards after contact. He has excellent acceleration and they want to use him more as kind of a kind of a, a yards after um, the catch type of player in the same way that they would use Saquon Barkley as a check down, at least before Barkley got hurt. And so with Ingram, what you saw a lot were plays that were in the short and intermediate ranges of the field. And I think they did that because they wanted to use the other players to stretch the field and let him work underneath. And I think that makes sense. Darius Slayton's a field stretcher for sure. Golden Tate and Sterling Shepard, you know, are very good route runners 
um, and they can certainly take a, attention away from safeties in the middle of the field so that they can open things up for Ingram. So I think part of it's that. Um, part of it's probably Daniel Jones in terms of when they look at the design of the offense. Daniel Jones isn't the greatest deep ball thrower. Um, we'll see if that improves this year. Certainly some early nice returns with his connection with Darius Slayton. But still, they probably feel like their best yards after catch type of player, other than, you know, and Golden Tate's aging, might be Evan Ingram. So I saw a lot of things to Ingram that were kind of underneath. I also saw that Evan Ingram dropped more than a few passes when watching his tape. So, you know, some people are asking about his opportunities and why aren't they exploiting him more? And I'm thinking, well, he's got to hold on to the football. He's got to stay healthy. He's got to be reliable in that, those respects. But he's on the field right now, but he's got to catch the football. And so he's had a few drops. I mean, he's made some good plays. And when he's caught it, I've seen him break tackles. I've seen him get yards after the catch and, and really show off some of the traits that I just mentioned. So I think, you know, overall, when you look at it, the way people want to use him in the scheme, I understand from a play action perspective, why they'd like to get him kind of working, working up field. But I also think that, you know, the way that the type of players that they have and the way they're using people, I understand why they're not trying to use him as purely a seam stretcher. It would be interesting, though, to see him as an outside receiver. I thought when I watched him in college, I thought he had an opportunity to become a pretty good outside receiver and be classified as that rather than a tight end. But obviously the Giants chose a different direction with him, um, and we'll see how that plays out long term. He certainly had a good first year, and he just hasn't been able to stay healthy for the past few. Rob Gronkowski. I haven't watched a ton of Rob Gronkowski, but from – other than, you know, in week two, but in week one, you know, I certainly saw a guy who, you know, they used him a lot as a blocker. And Bruce Arians came out this week and said, you know, if he doesn't catch a pass, who cares? I'm, you know, we brought him in to be a tight end. And that meant if he blocks, he blocks. You know, we think of him as a tight end. You know, he didn't say it exactly like that, but that was what he's inferring. And I also think he's probably playing around with the media to an extent and saying, listen, if you're going to ask me about him not being able to catch passes, yeah, sir, sure, we didn't ask him to run 40 yards downfield anymore. And if he doesn't catch a pass, he doesn't catch a pass. I think he's saying that from an exaggerated standpoint. To, and while that freaks out fantasy analysts and fantasy public, you know, what that means is you're going to see him used a lot, probably in the middle of the field, used as a blocker because this team needs to protect Tom Brady. And if your running backs aren't great at it right now, if you... If you have struggles along your offensive line, then Rob Gronkowski is a great option to be able to keep in line as help in the pass protection game and then maybe filter out to be a check down option. So, yeah, maybe it's time to downgrade Rob Gronkowski if you had um, high hopes for him. If you're looking from a fantasy perspective as a receiver, maybe if you had high hopes, you got to dog and grade him. But um, from what I've seen thus far, it's still early. I would imagine that Tom Brady will be looking to Rob Gronkowski in key situations. How often those key situations arise, that's the big question mark. So I think unless you're, you know, at, at this stage and, and you might want to hold on to him for another two to three weeks tops, and then at that point it might be time to make a change. And if you're someone that's in a league where you feel like you have the talent already, um, at that position, then it might be time to, to make a move, you know. And certainly a guy that people are making a move for is Mo Ali Cox, the the third string or the reserve, yeah, the third string tight end for the Colts who really, you know, we've seen him pl perform well over the past couple of years as a spot player um, in terms of contributions in the lineup. Um, but, you know, Trey Burton gets hurt, then Jack Doyle gets hurt. They bring in Mo Alley Cox against the Vikings, and he had a huge afternoon. From when I watched that game, and I'll probably do some video analysis of this because I thought it was interesting, is that, you know, there were three things at play with Alley Cox. One was that the Minnesota Vikings linebackers missed some assignments in coverage. They, you know, there was one notable play where Eric Kendricks is literally just chasing after him slowly. And, you know, even the commentator on the broadcast team, I overheard him say something to the effect of that it was surprising not to see Kendricks, you know, running full speed after him. And I think that 
Kendrick's, this was I, the play that I saw. It looked to me, it was happening on the right side of the field with Allie Cox and Kendrick's. And I think Kendrick's didn't think that that was his assignment. And there were a couple of plays where it wasn't just Kendrick's, but it was another linebacker who literally just didn't think he was assigned to Allie Cox. And he thought he had zone and had kind of like the shallow flat. And then the tight end ran by him and realized too late that he needed to be in on that, that he needed to take that. And the safety was occupied with a receiver deeper downfield. So Cox benefited from two of those plays. But then the other things that I saw that I think are constants that you can rely on when you're thinking about, is this someone that you can rely on to get production weekly? And those con- there are three constants there. One is his athletic ability. Obviously, he's a terrific rebounder. Looks like you know was a former basketball player. You can see that the chart that the Colts feel good about that. Philip Rivers, who's always been willing to allow his receivers to go up and win the football, showed confidence in Cox in that respect, being able to throw him open over a safety who was underneath in in coverage, and be able to allow Cox to go over the top and rebound the football. That was an encouraging sight. And something that you would expect to see with a player like that who has that type of aptitude. Um, And then the other thing was that they really schemed him open well. Actually, before I say that, the other thing too is that he was very good at being able to run after the catch. He has pretty good burst. He's someone that's willing to drop the pads on people. He can kind of bend around certain types of pursuit um, and get around some of those angles. So he's a guy that can give you something in the open field. And the way that the Chargers used him, the way they schemed him open, they used him on screens and throwouts. They used him on delayed releases up the seam. Um, they used play action um, to let him kind of, you know, sneak his way past the linebackers on certain plays. And with their run game and Jonathan Taylor and the way that he's looking, um, you know, Ali Cox is going to be a really good complement to that play in that play action passing game. So he's an obvious guy that you're going to want to get. And I think that. You know, if you want to be aggressive and you're trying to look for, say, a second tight end, um, you know, that can be there for you in case one of your stars gets hurt or you're just desperate for tight end production and you, you're you not happy with your starter, but maybe you don't want to drop Rob Gronkowski, but you don't like your starter, maybe you can add Allie Cox as kind of an intermediary between what Gronkowski might provide or you could just cut Gronkowski and take Allie Cox. You know, there are a lot of people that are probably going to do that. Um, another tight end that was interesting to watch is a former quarterback out of Virginia Tech who was drafted by the Cardinals, and that was Logan Thomas. And Thomas has bounced around from the Cardinals to playing tight end with the Buffalo Bills, um, and now he's in Washington. I believe he's been with another team um, between that time. And he seemed to have a connection with, uh, you know, with Dwayne Haskins. And watching him, you know, what you see, the athletic abilities on display, he's done a pretty good job as an underneath receiver. Um, I think that he's been, the, the plays that he's performed the best with have been plays that, where he's been schemed open. When he's had to kind of win one-on-one against man-to-man coverage and do it further downfield, he still struggled. You know, the athletic ability was there, but the ability to get in position and catch the ball and really be in a, an area where he needed to to manipulate the coverage but still be where he needed to be. I just didn't see it with him. Uh, There's still more to learn there. The promise is there, and his athletic ability is enticing, and people remember the name, so people get excited about him. And Washington really needs a second receiver outside of Terry McLaurin. So I can understand the excitement there, but I think there are better options to consider, like Jordan Akins. Jordan Akins is a guy that... You know, he's he's a very good player. He and Jonu Smith aren't that far apart in terms of ability. I thought Jonu Smith was very good after the catch. Um, and both, But I thought both of them were very good at tracking the football and making athletic adjustments on the ball and getting open in the intermediate range of the field. And I think Akins is starting to, you know, really become a reliable component in that Houston Texans offense and earning Deshaun Watson's trust. So I would recommend him. Another Washington football team option that was fun to kind of watch a little bit. And I had some, you know, that, you know, there was some consideration of making a video about him is Antonio Gibson. I watched Antonio Gibson for the, you know, during the two weeks that he's played. And, you know, people from the box score will probably say I wasn't all that impressed. 
he's he's mainly a gap runner. And when they used him on gap, I thought he did pretty well. He found creases. He found some cutbacks. He wasn't afraid to go into tighter spaces or consider tighter spaces, which is a good thing from a back who's had very little experience running between the tackles in terms of what you see on tape at Memphis. Um, he was used a lot in the slot and he was kind of specialized as a back. So the fact that he was willing to do that was a good sign. Um, the fact that he found alternate creases was a good sign. The fact that he would hit creases fairly hard when he when he had them was a good thing. Um, certainly someone who can break a tackle. He shows some acceleration. But he's playing a little slow right now. And it's not because he is slow. We know that about him from his workouts. Again, with young players, there's a difference between memorizing and knowing. And this is something that was reminded to me when I was watching some stuff just for fun. There's a pianist by the name of Chick Corea, um, who's a venerable jazz artist who's played with Miles Davis and who's you know, a fantastic artist in his own right, one of the great piano players in the history of improvised music. And he's doing these workshops and kind of video educational videos on YouTube. And somebody asked him about memorizing songs. You know, how do you how do you learn songs, memorize songs? What's some you know, what are some important advice about doing that? And he went into the idea about memorizing and knowing. And I think this applies to football really well. And it's something I've talked about repeatedly, but this is a good way to remember it. Because when you memorize something, what that says is that you're recalling it from memory. Like if your brain is looking at a screen or a page and it's basically reading what it is that's, you know, that's there. You know, it's like that's committing to memory. And when you're doing that, you're giving conscious thought to recalling what it is that you're reading um, or what it is that you're trying to remember. When, you know, if you do that in a football game or you do that in some sort of performance, because football is a performance sport, music is a performance medium. When you try to recall something by trying to remember it by that manner, you're going to be too slow. And oftentimes, especially with songs, the tempo might be fast enough that you can't be thinking like that. Because if you're thinking consciously of trying to remember what the next note is or the next phrase is or what, you know, what the next chord is going to be, you're already going to be behind. You're not going to be in the moment reacting to what's going on around you. You know, what the drummer's doing, how, what the piano did, you know, what the bass player's doing. You're probably going to be out of rhythm. You're going to be behind or you're going to be rushing or you're not going to be playing in tune because you're not, you know, you're overthinking in one area and you're not having a, you know, it's you're compensating too much bandwidth in one direction and your overall performance is in balance. And that's what happens with football players early in their careers when they get to the NFL because they're trying to remember things and that conscious action causes them to have make mistakes you know a wide receiver who's thinking too much about the route is gonna you know get distracted when there's contact and then he doesn't bring his hands up on time or use the right hand position to catch the football you see you know Quintez Cephas was a good example of a player who did that early on when Roquan Smith kind of got his hands on him early on a crossing route, you know, in week one. Common rookie issue, you know. Um, playing slow, and that's what Antonio Gibson is doing at times. Common rookie issue. You know, you're trying to remember the play call. You're trying to, you know, think about what your options are. You're going to be a step slow. Even when you see open space, you might be a step slow at, you know, recognizing it and get caught. You know, and that's what I see from Gibson a little bit. But that's okay. I've seen that with plenty of really good players, you know, who just aren't quite as efficient where they need to be, don't remember what they need to do, or they're making mistakes. It's a at some point they get to learn what they're doing by knowing. They've got to learn their footwork by knowing, their routes by knowing. They've got to understand the techniques they're doing by knowing. And knowing is different. As Chick Corea would say, knowing is like the way you know how to breathe, the way you know how to eat, the way you know how to walk, these are things that you don't have to consciously think about doing if you're living a fairly normal existence right now. Um, 
It's a subconscious type of thing. You know, you've already ingrained it in your being. You've learned how to do it. And it's been repeated so many times that, you know, as a result, you don't even think about it. And that's where great play comes from. That's where, you know, good performances come from is that you've practiced something over and over again that you've basically forgotten about it. Like you've even forgotten what the steps were. You're just doing it at that point. Um, you know, that's that's a big part of it. There's a scene in Million Dollar Baby where Morgan Freeman talks about um, what it takes to train a fighter. And there, it's a whole montage with, you know, Clint Eastwood and Hilary Swank where he's training her. And there's a lot of that concept in there about breaking someone down until... Um, they're built back up and what they're doing is to the point that they just know how to do it, you know, and it takes so much repetition and, and that's something that happens with footwork and with reading blocking schemes and understanding what hand usage to do when someone, you know, presents an obstacle or a counter and how you counter that counter. Those are things that you just can't think about. You just do it because you've worked at it so much. So, yeah, those are some players that um, I thought were worthwhile talking about. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk about, I wanted to thank some people. And I certainly want to give a special thanks because if you've checked out the YouTube channel, Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room, and if you're not subscribing, man, what's going on? Check it out. There's a lot of work there. You get to see really a video record of a lot of my thoughts on players ranging back several years now. I've got, you know, I think I've probably got close to 400, you know, 400, 450, maybe even 500 videos up there at this point. I've recently, though, got some help from some uh, a video graphics and editing team. And they're going to be putting together some videos for me weekly, probably two a week. Um, and then maybe some bigger projects down the line. And if you haven't checked them out, check out my Quintez Cephas NFL lens, my Adrian Peterson NFL lens, you're going to see the Daryl Williams, excuse me, the Daryl Henderson um, NFL lens on that YouTube channel, as well as um, a J.K. Dobbins short. And all of them have just fantastic video graphics and editing. I mean, like network quality stuff. And so they make me look a lot better than I am. And I appreciate that very much. I've had a lot of good feedback from that from people who are diehard listeners. Um, you'll find these videos very entertaining. So I want to thank, first of all, you know, the editors and motion graphics editors, Justin Johnson and Peter Gumas. They've done fantastic work with the video paint graphics. Um, and then as well as Alex Hanowitz, who leads that team and coordinates a lot of the, the scheduling and work and is an intermediary between me and them. And you can contact Alex Hanowitz if you're a football analyst and wanting to, you know, learn, you know, possibly get some video done from them. You can talk to them about their terms at um, Hanowitz, H-A-N-O-W-I-T-Z, dot Alex at gmail.com. And these guys know what they're doing. They know football. Um, they know, they certainly have experience in the TV fields. Um, the editors do. And they understand what they're doing with this work. I mean, it's it's great work. And I'm proud to be um, having a chance to do this work and be able to showcase their skills. So definitely check that stuff out. Um, and if you're someone that's interested in working with them or having them work for you, I would highly recommend them. I think this is going to be a really good team of folks. And they'll have a business, they'll have a, an entity in terms of a, a name of their business fairly soon. They're just getting started. Um, but again, like I said, they know the game and they know how to do their work. Um, someone who knew the game extremely well passed away um, yesterday. And um, I never saw him play live, but when I was growing up and watching football, um, there were two players who were just revered to anybody that I knew who understood football, at least from my point of view at an early age growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. And obviously the first one was Jim Brown, but the other one who was mentioned, and it was mentioned with almost like this hushed reverence, was Gale Sayers. Gail say I, I watched a lot of NFL films growing up. Um, you know, to me, you know, for some people, you know, in my age, cartoons were like the thing that you grew up on and couldn't wait for. 
Um, I loved cartoons. We all did growing up, but uh, NFL films, man, if you could put me, if you could put NFL films on and let me watch that for eight hours straight, I would have done it, you know, and certainly did it for a couple hours straight. And I remember when NFL films used to show their episodes on ESPN, like late at night, like one after the other, after the other. And, you know, in, in college, shoot, if I, if, there were times I'd just get lost on that rabbit hole and just watch NFL film after NFL film. They were just fantastic. And one of those guys who I learned to appreciate from NFL films was Gale Sayers. And the, the Kansas Comet, who played for the Chicago Bears, most of you know who he is. Most of you have seen who are on my, you know, who are subscribing to this podcast. I imagine most of you know who he is. Um, but he was arguably one of the greatest runners of all time in terms of, I mean, even like top five, you know, and I know there are a lot of people who grew, you know, who were born after me who, you know, they can't imagine that they're going to bring up guys like, you know, Barry Sanders and Emmett Smith and LaDainian Tomlinson and Marshall Falk and Adrian Peterson. And they're all great runners and they all deserve to be mentioned as great runners. Um, the things Gale Sayers did before his knee injury um, were unbelievable. And you might look at it and say, well, he was playing against guys who weren't as agile as he was. He seemed to be ahead of his time a bit. I think all great players were a little bit ahead of their time. But I honestly feel like that if you put him on an NFL field now, like if you took Pete Gale Sayers and you could transport him to the NFL field now, he still would have been great. Um, the the vision he had, the ability he had to make cuts, how light-footed he was. There's a play that I talk about a lot. Um, and when I say a lot, it means it probably seems like once a year, bring it up. But it's he had six touchdowns in one game, and the sixth touchdown was an old Kezar Stadium in a mud-soaked field where he returned a punt. And that punt return where the cut that he makes, you know, up the right flat, um, where he basically splits two people. Um, and, and it was mud. I mean, I have not seen a field like that in a in a football game since probably the 80s when I was watching the Cleveland Browns play in old Municipal Stadium. And, I'd have, and I doubt that was even as bad as what that field looked like. I mean, it looked like a field that most of the time you would slip on. And the cut he made... Is the type of thing that I would see. I see players slip trying to make a cut not even as sharp on like turf, <laughs> you know, or perfectly manicured grass, or at least it looks like that. You know what I mean? I mean, the guy was amazing. Deacon Jones joked that, you know, that he tried to tackle Gale Sayers once and he split in two and then reconstituted himself behind him. I mean, you know, fun urban legend kind of stuff, football legend stuff, but he was a legend. Um, and, you know, so, you know, rest in peace, Gail Sayers. Certainly someone who gave me a real love for the game and for the running back position. Um, if, you, if you ever want to say that you understand running back play and you don't want, and you haven't watched Gail Sayers, you don't know shit. I'm just going to tell you that right now. You don't know shit. Even if you think you know. If Jay Moyer, who I absolutely love, and you know I love Jay, if Jay comes to me and tells me he never watched Gale Sayers, then I'm going to tell him to his face he doesn't know shit about the running back position. And he, and he knows a fair bit, but he still doesn't know shit if he hasn't seen Gale Sayers and really watched him. So I would recommend you go watch Gale Sayers. All right, so let's talk about some lessons that you know are worth learning. First of all, you know, I one of the interesting Twitter exchanges I saw on my timeline when I asked for people to show me about players was a guy who said, you know, can you please do a review of Michael Gallup and explain, you know, and answer why the Dallas Cowboys aren't using their best receiver as much as they should. And, you know, I just think they're misusing him. Why is he not getting touches? Why are they going to let... Then there's this whole argument between him and some other people about why he was the best receiver and why they were going to let him walk. And it was because of, 
you know, Amari Cooper's contract, and it was because of um, C.D. Lamb being a, a highly drafted rookie, and it was all about draft capital and contract. And certainly draft capital will get you opportunities over other players, but um, C.D. Lamb's good. <laughs> He's really good. Um, and watching him on film, there's nothing that's changed that could change my mind about that from what I've seen thus far. Trust me on that. And Amari Cooper gets a lot of um, criticism, but he's also really good. He's an he's one of the great route runners in the game, and certainly it didn't work out for him in, in with the Las Vegas Raiders or the Oakland Raiders at the time, but he's a great route runner, and he's an excellent player, and he has to deal with a lot of the primary defenders in this league, and the primary defensive backs in this league are a tough group. And he does pretty darn good with them. So when you look at Michael Gallup, the reason that Michael Gallup isn't getting the statistical love that maybe this individual thinks he deserves is worth learning about and understanding that receivers have roles. You know, you have a slot receiver, you have, an, you have a split end, you have a flanker. And in many offenses like the Cowboys, the split end is the guy that you send deep. He threatens the defense vertically. He's the guy on the end of the lower percentage plays, the lowest percentage passing plays in the offense. Sure, he'll get some short looks on occasion, but more often than not, he's going to be sent into the intermediate and deep ranges of the field. And the defenses know that if this is that they need to stop that guy or account for that um, for those plays because they don't want those quick hitting plays to get them behind early because then there's so much that the offense can do. So you've got to stop that really as your primary objective, even if the better receivers might be the guys who are catching the shorter passes. Now, I'm not going to... You can get in the argument about whether Gallup is better than, than Cooper and Lamb and all that, and you could go there if you want to, and I would argue that... You know, those other two receivers are better than Gallup. But Gallup's a very good player, and that's just a rabbit hole that's kind of useless to even go down in the first place. What it's really about is looking at the roles and how that works and understanding that he serves a role, and that role isn't to get as many stats as possible, but it's to help the offense in ways without the football. And part of that is stretching the field, and part of that is being a threat on those lower percentage plays. And he's enough of that that it helps out his teammates. So he is helping his teammates. And yeah, maybe they let him walk because they think they can find another player who can do that work and they and it's, or it's more important for them to sign the two players who do all that underneath and catch the ball at a higher volume of targets and do more after the catch and can play multiple positions. Because if Michael Gallup played multiple positions really well, he, you know, maybe they wouldn't have needed to draft C.D. Lamb. Maybe they would have found another player and moved Michael Gallup around. So, you know, it's just something to consider that you think about the role of the receiver and understand that that there's maybe not some grand conspiracy. It's just that he plays a certain role and that role doesn't have that function in the offense. And maybe you'll look at it and say, well, it's a shame because I really like Gallup and I think that there's more that can be done with them. And maybe. With a new team, that can happen. Um, but, you know, at some point, you know, arguing that or standing on that hill or dying on that hill may not be worth it. All right. Next player is Mike Davis. Going to be a very popular waiver wire pick. Probably already has been. Um, you know, I just did a roundtable. I lead the roundtable every week at Football Guys and moderate that. And one of the questions I posed was, you know, with that whole devastating week two in terms of the slew of injuries that occurred to prof high-profile skill players, you know, who are some guys that you would recommend right off the bat? And, you know, the, the majority opinion, at least on one player for sure, repeatedly mentioned was Mike Davis because they loved what he did in the PPR game in terms of catching the football, having eight receptions in the game. Um, I believe he had eight receptions. I know, or maybe it was 10 targets, eight receptions. I think that's what it was. That's nothing new to me. You know that. I've been talking about Mike Davis for years, and I you know, loved when he came to Seattle. 
like the idea of what he could do if they give him, gave him a chance. He's a good cutback runner. He can play with good contact balance and strength. He has excellent burst. Um, he's a smart runner, and he's a terrific receiver. And so he fits perfectly in what the Carolina Panthers were doing. And, you know, I, had a, I know I had a recent reader thank me for recommending J, um, Davis over Bonifon about three months ago when he asked me by email, which one should he keep for his dynasty roster? Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely, Mike Davis. And this was before Matt Rule basically said he liked Davis in camp and that, you know, that he was going to have a good shot at being the number two running back. Well, you know, one of the things that one of our, um, one of our uh, writers of football guys, Andy Hicks, who, you know, does really great fantasy work. Andy is a, Andy has his own views and I like his views because they, while they're based mostly in numbers rather than watching film, he's very honest about how he comes about what he does. And he often comes up with viewpoints that differ from the norm and they're, and they often are right, you know? So, you know, one of the things that he mentioned though, that was interesting to me was that, um, you know, he praised Mike Davis in terms of what Mike Davis did from a number standpoint over a, a stretch of weeks with the Seattle Seahawks, um, but then had a kind of this throwaway line about how, he, of course, he was with the Bears, and the Bears took one look at him and promptly cut him basically before the season even began. So keep that in mind type of thing. And my response, just to be a jokester, but was true as well, was, well, you know, the Chicago Bears aren't exactly the barometer for great personnel choices lately. Um, and while that's not exactly true, um, what is important to know about Mike Davis in that situation is that you don't really want to conclude that a player isn't good because he gets cut by a team, especially a veteran. A veteran can get cut by a team because they see something else in another player that's promising. They want to keep that promising player. And now it's a numbers game between the cheaper young player who's going to be second or third string on the depth chart versus a veteran that they're going to have to pay a higher salary for who's also going to be second or third on the depth chart. Um, and as a result, who are you going to spend more money on? You know, you'd rather you're going to take the cheaper player and hope they develop. That's just a business decision. Sometimes a player isn't a good fit with an organization. Maybe he, maybe they want to run, you know, more gap plays, and he's more of a zone runner. Um, maybe they run a lot of screen plays, but he's not very good at screens. But he's really good at wide routes and swing passes. But when he has to kind of work his way through the line of scrimmage. Maybe he's not very good at being able to like work through that and not get tangled up by a defender. And because they rely on the screen game so much, they he's a liability in that respect. You know, I'm not saying that was Mike Davis. I'm just saying that's those are some examples of what can happen. So sometimes a player is a better fit in some areas than others. It's just like work. I mean, there's some people who, you know, their one job. And they just don't fit the culture or they don't fit the work process and the emphasis of certain skills that they're looking for. And it's not, and it's because maybe it's a certain job where it's like, how would I best put it? It's like writing. I mean, like say writing's your job, you know, if you're someone who is really good at long form journalism and, you know, investigative pieces but you're writing for a site where the site is basically saying we want lots of 500 word pieces and um you know you and you know we want snappy headlines and we're looking for more clicks to the point that it's like make your stuff clickbait make your titles clickbait make your make your writing simple you know do Make it, you know, look at the lowest common denominator of your audience and focus on that. Well, probably someone who loves doing long form isn't going to want to work there for very long anyway. But maybe also someone who's really good at that, um, you know, maybe they're not as good at those at the short form stuff. Or probably more accurately, because most long form people are good at short form if they want to be. 
would be this. I knew a writer who was unbelievable at PR, like great public relations writer, great at press releases, like the formula of press, there's a formula for press releases. And you learn that formula and you can write pretty much any, you know, you can write press releases and reel them off. And he could, he could give you five, 10 press releases in a day if you needed him to. This is a guy I worked with. But man, you ask him to do some long form journalism and he's going to lock himself in his office. He's probably not going to sleep for a couple nights and then he's going to wind up handing it off to, to someone else, mainly me or somebody else. Because he just gets too wrecked. Like he just can't do that form of media that's just unstructured. There's not, the formula is too broad. There's too many angles to consider. He overthinks everything, can't whittle it down and locate what the main story is. Doesn't really have a, you know, doesn't know how to tell that kind of story. Doesn't mean that he's not a great employee. He's just not great at that. You know, so sometimes, you know, if you, you know, and maybe the person who's, a good long form writer may not be the one that you want just covering the the PR stuff, you know, and putting all that kind of thing out. So again, it's just important to to understand. Mike Davis may got may have gotten like a quick look at the the by the Bears and they said no thanks. That's no reflection on his ability. And it's something to keep in mind about veterans and rookies alike, and it helps you stay patient with them. Not necessarily to keep them on your rosters for fantasy, but just to understand that there may be something still there. Hakeem Butler, as an example, we talked about him last week. May not have signed anywhere. Maybe that's telling, but it's worthwhile to keep an open mind to say, I'll continue to monitor to see where he goes and what ends up happening. Um, we saw that happen with Raheem Mostert, right? So, Keelan Cole. You know, that's another player that was kind of interesting to talk about because... Keelan Cole's had a pretty good start to the season, just like he did two years ago where he had a fantastic start. And then he lost his confidence. And, you know, it's fascinating because he went to us. He was, a, I think it was from Kentucky Wesleyan. He was an undrafted guy, really promising as a rookie and really came on during the playoffs and was just making like big boy primary receiver catches on the outside against top cornerbacks against in the playoffs, you know, having big games against the Steelers and Patriots or at least huge moments and then he played the you know faced the Patriots in week 1 I believe or week 2 and just went off against them making you know pro bowl caliber contested plays acrobatic plays and then he just started dropping passes and they just disappeared and then it was just kind of like well what happened to him and then the following year What's interesting is the following year, Keenan McCardell um, in training camp said, you know, here's what happened. Keelan Cole lost his confidence and he just kind of went into a shell. His game went into a shell. We worked with him during the offseason. We're starting to see him gain his confidence back. And he started to have a good follow-up campaign in 2019 in terms of his training camp. And then the season started and you didn't see much from him. Um... But as the season went on and as the season went down the final stretch, he really started to have an impact. And you saw it a lot from the slot. And you're, and he had arguably the best training camp of any receiver on the Jaguars roster this summer. The confidence was still there. Um, and you're seeing it early in the season. He's making plays in the red zone. He's had a couple touchdowns in as many games. You know, he's making some nice catches inside and outside. There's a rapport with Gardner Minshew. Something to build on. And I think the lesson there is, you know, a lot of people like to talk about narrative and there's no room for narrative and you don't want to get too crazy about narrative. And that's understandable. But narrative has a place from the standpoint of that it should allow you to stay open-minded about a player and understand that there may be some seeds that are being planted that will help you understand why that production is going to come at some point or there's a, at least an opportunity for production. And when you look at a guy like Cole, certainly the data on the field, I mean, if you want to call film data, because it really is, it's visual data. The visual data early in his career was off the charts good. And then it disappeared. So are you going to say that's a fluke? If you say that's a fluke, then you don't know shit about what you're seeing on the, on the screen. You don't 
you're discounting you know the types of plays that he made you know you're and that's just that's silly you know it's just it's misguided um so you know you kind of ask yourself what happened and people can lose confidence in what they're doing when you when you lose that confidence um and the skills are skills are there but maybe there's some baseline skills that we're missing maybe certain route concepts or positioning concepts um and you lose that you lose confidence for a little bit it can be hard you know and it's one of those things that it can cause you to question everything that you do and and you don't may not understand that if you've never been in the performance industry whether you're performing in the boardroom you know providing doing presentations um if you've ever done a presentation and someone's reamed you and humiliated you in front of people and you used to think you were really good at presentations but someone just like you know just went at what you did tore it apart whether it was justified or whether it was abusive almost you know, that's going to tear you down. It's going to cause you to question things maybe you haven't questioned before. You're going to start re-examining things that maybe you knew, not memorized, but actually knew. But now you're revisiting them as if like you don't even know them anymore. You can go through that. If you haven't, you may have not lived life long enough to experience these types of things where you question yourself. But it happens in some aspect of life. You know, whether it's a failed marriage and you're like, you know, were you a good partner or a good spouse? You know, your kid's angry with you about something they're going through in adolescence or you disappointed them with something that you wish you didn't. And they're and they're angry about it. And you start thinking, you know, you might beat up yourself, you know, you might beat yourself up a little bit emotionally and cause yourself to question a lot of things that are basic. That's just normal. You know, it's, it's, these are normal things that happen. I, you know, I remember I knew some doctors. The joke was, is that, you know, they'd have mothers who of newborns and the mothers would come in and they'd just be upset because the baby's crying so much and they're not getting sleep. And this is their first kid. And maybe they're a single parent. And on top of it, they're just like, some of them are honest enough to say, I'm ashamed to say this because I, I hate to think that anyone think that I'm a bad mother. I love my child more than anything, but when I hear them cry at certain for a certain length of time after I've done everything I could, there's a point where I imagine just wanting to throw them up against a wall to shut them up, you know, an infant. And the doctor kind of laughs and says, well, you didn't, did you? And they're like, no, of course not. I would never do that. I love them. I said, good, but that's completely normal to, to, to have that thought cross your mind. We're all human beings. That happens. You have second thoughts about what kind of parent you are, or what you, you know, all those types of things. So the point is, is that, yeah, you know, players can have second thoughts and start to question themselves. And I think that's what Keenan Cole did. And he was able to come back from that. A lot of players aren't because a lot of players don't have that support system. They're young. Their family may not understand what they're going through. They may not have a great coach. Maybe the coaching staff is just like, whatever, we'll get rid of them. You know, fine, we'll find somebody else. You know, maybe they didn't have a receiver like Keenan McCardell as their coach who has probably gone through some of that concerning that he was with Washington and Cleveland before he made his way to Jacksonville and became a perennial, you know, star possession receiver working with Jimmy Smith. So he probably understood what that meant to to come from a smaller program and not be and be kind of counted on, not being counted on. And then having some good moments and then losing confidence. I'm sure he's been through that. And he was probably helpful in that regard. So are these um, are these common things that happen? Are these? I think they're more common than people realize. Um, but we don't usually see the highs and lows to the extent that we saw with Keenan Cole. Um, Keelan Cole. So keep an eye on Keelan Cole. You know, that's... That's why those the three kind of lessons with Michael Gallup in terms of, you know, understanding the role of the player, Mike Davis, understanding that getting cut by one team doesn't mean you're bad, just means you may not be a great fit um, financially or role-wise. Um, and then Keelan Cole and just understand that players lose confidence and that they can gain it back. All right, so we're going to, you know, end this RSP episode with some unfiltered thoughts about, you know, being a football writer, 
um, or a fantasy analyst or a draft analyst, anything from that standpoint. So if you've been interested in doing this or you're just kind of interested in what this industry is like behind the curtain a little bit, or you're someone who's in this industry and you're just curious about what I think about stuff, and I've got a few things that are on my mind. All right, first thing I'd like to say is, um, you know, once you start, you know, there's certain levels of, you know, about this business. And I think one of them is that I would recommend to you, regardless of what level you're at, whether you're just starting out, whether you're writing at a place that you've, you know, that you're starting to get a nice audience or you already have an established audience and you're making good money and maybe you're doing your own thing or you're at a top level site. I would recommend that you take at least one to two days off per week from social media. At least one. I'd recommend two. That doesn't mean that you don't put anything on social media, but I would recommend that you just don't interact with anybody on social media at least one day out of the week. It means, you know, get, I would recommend the, the app Buffer. Buffer allows you to pre-program your, um, your tweets and you can put them on a rotation one to two days in advance. Then give you an opportunity to just to post things. And if you want to come back to look to maybe respond to stuff, you can do that. But I recommend not. I would at least, you know, I do that once or I do that two or three times a day. But then there's a day or two that I literally, I don't respond. I'll come back to it later. If I miss something, I miss something. I just get away from it because social media, as my buddy Eric Stoner would say, is not reality. And we oftentimes make it reality and it's maddening. You know, and certainly if you haven't seen that Netflix show on social media, The Social Dilemma, I believe it's called, it's fantastic in terms of, you know, what the people who've developed social media are saying about, you know, the influence it has, both intended and unintended, that are not good for you, you know? So I would just, I would recommend getting away from it because you need that break. You need to be able to approach things from a mature perspective. You need to have a level of perspective about it to understand what's important to your career and what you don't need to get into the weeds about. So that's one of the things that I would recommend, no matter whether you're starting and grinding out or whether you're, you're established. Um, I would recommend that you recognize other people for their work that you make a conscious effort to do that. It's not so much from a networking perspective. I know people who are great networkers and I don't fucking believe a word they say about anything because they're just too on point about everything. It's like they've read a ton of, you know, business books, self-help books, um, whatever, you know, kind of thing out there on how to be good at certain things. And everything's just too spot on the mark. And it just feels, um, it, it just feels disingenuous at times. And there's some people who really mean to be genuine. They just maybe not, they're afraid to, they're people pleasers and they don't always know how. Those folks I'm okay with though. I feel sorry for them sometimes in that respect. Um, but what I would say to you is that find people that you you like the work they do and, and tell them that you like what they're doing and share that with other people. People want to see that you, that you appreciate what other people do and that you, and they, they want to know what your recommendations are with people. And with that in mind, be selective about it. I don't follow a ton of people relative to the amount of followers I have on Twitter. And the reason I do that is because my brand's supposed to be fairly discriminating about what I look at. You know, I'm not, I don't hop on bandwagons that often. And sometimes as a result of that, I end up starting bandwagons because I've been alone in my voice and looking at liking certain things. You know, it's not necessarily by design. It's just what happens when you, when you have an idea of what you want to do and how you want to go about doing it. And it can be different than other people. So when you, when you are someone that may have had ideas that stand out from the rest, people are going to look at you and when you recommend something, you don't want to recommend things that you don't believe in or people you don't want to believe in. That's why I don't advertise on my site right now because 
I mean, I don't have anything against sports betting. I mean, but I get offers, you know, everyone gets offers to do sports betting. But I don't I don't do that, you know. And, you know, I respect Ross Tucker, who's I've been on his show for a year and I love that experience with him. And he does a lot of ads and I'm sure he makes money off of those ads, you know. But for me, it's just not my thing. You know, I want when I find certain I want to find certain ads that I feel really good about um, and what it is I'm going to offer. But like for me, sports betting isn't one of them. You know, I, I feel like um, while the NFL's embraced betting a little bit more through its fantasy lens and some, you know, now playing in Vegas and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I still feel like that there should be a little bit of a wall there um, between the two. And I just feel like it's important that um that people understand that. So, you know, if you're listening and you're a sports better, you know, and you get value from my work, good for you. I'm glad. If you're someone who was thinking about approaching me for advertising, yeah, you you could forget about that for a while. Um, <laughs> and I know someone who probably be mad at me for saying that, but um, but it's true, you know. So make sure that what who you recommend, whether it's a fantasy writer, whether it's a you know, whether it's an analyst, whether it, whatever it is that you really like what they're doing and you're just not doing it because you feel like you're obligated to, you know, you can be upfront with people and, you know, if they're looking for some sort of quid pro quo situation where it's like, well, I tweet your stuff. Why don't you tweet out mine? It's like, if that's the, you can say to people, if that's the relationship you thought we had, um, I'm sorry, but you know, I'll tweet your stuff out if I like it. I'm glad that you liked mine. And if they didn't like yours, I'll stop tweeting it. You know, but I mean, like, make people be straightforward and be straightforward with them. I think that works out well. And speaking of, you know, being straightforward, you know, how would I best put this? Um, some people don't come to this industry from a writing background. So maybe they don't understand and how serious this is, but don't plagiarize. Don't plagiarize people. Don't befriend someone, ask them tons of questions. This hasn't happened to me, by the way. This isn't about me. Um, but don't ask them questions, then just like go write an article and not credit them for the work that you, that you got from them or the knowledge that you got from them. That's awful. That's sleazy. Um, and I've... You know, I know some people who've done that. Um, and if it were up to me, I would do a lot to make sure they never work in this industry again. I just think, you know, there's things that you can accidentally do, you know, and I can understand where there was an accident where maybe you had a conversation about one thing and you didn't necessarily credit the person for it. And it could, there could be a gray area with that, but there's that. And it's a lot different to like have an in-depth conversation about a topic, write in depth about that topic and then act like that was all your idea. Uh, I guess say the last thing I'd say is just have a hobby, have a hobby outside of football. You know, I think most people will do that, but you can get really wrapped up in this stuff. Make sure you take some time away to do something else because you can get to a point where even your football work becomes stale and it even will come across stale for other people if you're not out in the world discovering other things, you know. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, so again, I appreciate everyone for... Uh, listening to the Rookie Scouting Portfolio podcast. Um, obviously, if this is new to you, you can find it um, you know, on iTunes, on Amazon, on Spotify, as well as uh, you know, Podbean and Stitcher. And then uh, you, know, you can check out the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. You know, if you've been impressed with the work that you've seen from the videos, it's all work I do to get ready for the book that I write every April and then the addendum that comes out, um, you know, in May after the draft. You can find out more about it at mattwaldman.com. Highly recommend you go there. If you like what I do, again, 
All of this is in preparation for that. That's the best work I do by far. And I think most people who follow my work and get the RSP will attest to that. Very few people who buy it don't come back the next year. Most of them are repeat customers and very happy about it and wish their league mates didn't know about it. <laughs> so thanks again for listening. You guys have a terrific week and uh, I'll see you next week.